Thanks, Mike. Good morning, everybody. It's good to see you all here. We are continuing our series on the book of Philippians, and we've come to a pretty nodal passage in the book. I was thinking back, um, when I was in college, this would have been my sophomore year or so, 1991, 92, um, I memorized the book of Philippians. I had a, had a close friend who was a few years older than me, very committed uh, young man, and he uh, memorized books of the Bible, which I had never even comprehended. And uh, so he had this little method. You do just like three verses a day, and obviously over a few months you can get these littler books taken care of. And I don't say that to uh, boast or anything like that because I couldn't even probably give you the first three verses of Philippians now. Um, but I do remember... And this is a testimony to the power of, of the word. I do remember that season of my life um, as an especially uh, uh, joyous and positive season. And as I've thought back, and especially kind of going back through Philippians here, um, I've thought about the, uh, the impact of the word on my own life during that season. And the, the impact I had from a from a, uh, from a testimony or witness or evangelistic standpoint. And I remember an incident um, that happened that same year. I worked at uh, the food service in Friley Hall. And at that time, Friley Hall was the dorm that I lived in. And it was the third largest in the country. Over 5,000 students lived in Fr Friley Hall at Iowa State. It was a massive uh, four to five story building, depending on where you were at that just kind of curled around several blocks. And so I worked in food service. And on one, uh, one particular semester, I had a shift on Wednesdays. It was three hours long, like one to four in the afternoon. And all I did for that three hours was cut dessert. And so literally, I, so I'm the one cutting dessert for the thousands of people that would eat. So it would be hundreds of pies or hundreds of cake, and I would just sit there for three hours cutting dessert. And um, also, in this same uh, context, there was, a, there was a gentleman who also uh, called himself a Christian, um, but he was this grumpy, crusty, grouchy old guy that he was a full-time staff member, wasn't a student worker, um, but he basically had a mission to confront the students. And if you were a Christian, he would confront you uh, with the ongoing reality that every day you had lost your salvation and that you had to repent of that. Um, and then if you weren't a Christian, he, you would, I mean, it was just this constant condemnation to hell. And he was not a joyful guy. He was not a guy that had a good reputation among the students or among the staff because everybody would kind of whisper behind his back. And regardless of your, of your um, even, it, it, it just created such a, uh, a negative environment. So I just started confronting him. Like, because he would just literally go up to students and just kind of start oppressing them. 
with his challenges. And I finally just kind of got tired of it. And just publicly then, whether we were working while there were still students eating lunch or afterwards where they're cleaning up, because I also had mop duty for three hours several days a week. Anyway, um, I just started confronting him. Dude, you are not accurate in your understanding of the scriptures. And I'd quote verses and we'd go back and forth and we'd argue. And eventually there was this kind of this, this sense that um, um, I was more of a real deal. And so there's this one particular instant where, where this young woman came up, was all I was cutting dessert. And she just, you know, she made a few comments about my disposition. I didn't complain. I followed the rules. I wore a white T-shirt. There was a very strict um, uniform requirement. I had to wear a white T-shirt, dark pants. And, and so she made these comments, um, noticing my behavior, making comments about my confrontation of this guy, and then just started asking me all of these questions about the faith and about Scripture. She had grown up Catholic, and, um, but really had really not obtained or, or acquired any wisdom or knowledge. Um, and so here she is observing all of these things. And it, that season of my life was a, was a fairly fruitful season in regard to witness, and I've thought back about that time and the, the ideas that, that we're talking about in this passage. Um, and and I, think, I, think that, I think that I have developed um, a conceit, a conceit. And we're going to look into that a little bit more today. But we looked at it from the passage, you know, where Paul says, do not do anything from selfish ambition or conceit. And conceit is a, a perspective of yourself that holds itself higher and looks down on others. And that kind of gives you this privilege. It gives you a privilege to um, be negative or critical or sin or... Um, complain or grumble or be discontent or, or whatever, and to look down upon others. And so, I, I, so I've just kind of looked back on my, on my life, and I've seen these seasons where, where there was um, fruitful, joyful, contented um, lifestyle. I mean, three hours of cutting pie. If there's anything you could grumble about, that, that would maybe beyond. There wasn't suffering, but it was just painstaking and boring and a number of other things. But I, I remember I didn't complain. I would work without complaint. And, 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 then, and, I just, and then my witness and my testimony, and obviously when you're in a college environment, you're around non-Christians all the time. That was my entire life. I lived with non-Christians. My roommates were non-Christians. I'm working with non-Christians. And so you have a, a much more um, available audience, so to speak, on an everyday life-on-life -life level. Um, but I don't remember the... the I, I can get critical, and I can get... Uh, I can grumble or complain, and it's, 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 when, it's when that I'm thinking less about people or circumstances than, than, than what I think I deserve. And so the passage today that, that Mike read um, is, a, 
you know, we've been waiting for We've been waiting for an application, a specific application. What do you mean, Paul, uh, that we're supposed to live um, as one man with one mind for the progress of the gospel, with one spirit? What does it mean that we're not to look unto our own interests, but also to the interests of others? So he hasn't, he hasn't been giving us a specific example yet. And so we get to this passage here, 2.12 through 18, and it's, it's, the, it's the central application from the whole book. So the first chapter and a half have come to this point, and the rest of the book, it's going to deal with more practical, applicable things, but it is coming from this, the passage out of these seven verses here. And so he starts out... Uh, as you have always obeyed, now much more in my absence, with this implication that he is anticipating um, obedience. I'm going to come back to this, this push towards obedience. Obviously, it's, he's coming off of the admonition that we are to obey as Christ obeyed the Father. But I want to point out that he's working because he continues on. He says, do everything without grumbling and disputing so that you could be a light in this, this w- wicked and perverted or twisted generation. And immediately, or maybe not so immediately, but if you're familiar with the story of, of the Israelites in the book of Exodus or in the middle half of the book of Numbers, if you can remember, and those of you that are taking the message of the Bible class, you have one of the whole sessions is on this, on this very point. When, they, when the Israelites were released from Egypt, they were very exuberant. God had delivered them after they had been crying out for deliverance from the slavery, from the harsh slavery and the murderous Egypt. And so God released them. But just a few days into their freedom, they start grumbling and complaining. And there are these, and so the, the book of Exodus begins to unfold. Their journey to Mount Sinai, where they received the law, is, is outlined, structured according to five instances of grumbling and complaining. And so then they're at Mount Sinai, and number six is the golden calf, where they grumbled and complained because Moses took too long to come down. And so they make the golden calves. And so then you have another six instances, excuse me, five instances. So there's five prior to Mount Sinai, one at Mount Sinai, and then four afterwards. And then the final complaint is when, is when God sends the spies, or Moses sends the spies into the land right before they are to go into enter it. And now this is the land that God said he would provide for them. So they send 12 spies in, and 10 of the 12 spies come back and say, there is no possible way that we can take over these people. They're all giants. They've got the best uh, weapons and fortresses, <clears throat> excuse me, there's no way we can conquer these people. And can Caleb and, and Joshua said, no, 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 God will deliver it into our hands just as he's been delivering us. Well, this was the final straw. And due to their grumbling and complaining, they were not allowed into the promised land. And that generation wandered around for 40 years in the wilderness until the next generation came, to, came of age. And so there's reference to the grumbling and disputing in this passage and to the twisted and crooked generation, which is the same phrase that Moses uses in Deuteronomy 32. And so we see in that story in Exodus and in Numbers the significance 
of grumbling and complaining in God's people in regard to his ongoing purposes. They weren't seeing their lives in the larger perspective. They weren't holding on to the promises that God had for them. And if you think about what they complain, if you're familiar with the story, most of the time they were complaining about the lack of water and the lack of food. Even though God had shown that he would provide for them and care for them. And part of the testing they were going through was needed in order that they would be able to survive the challenges that they would face when they got to the promised land and needed to force out these other nations. And so all they could think about was the immediate contexts that they were in. It seems like we're going to starve. It seems like we're going to thirst. And they would grumble and complain against God. And they would say, if only you had left us back in Egypt, where we enjoyed all of the food and drink we wanted. And they never mentioned the harsh labor and the fact that their kids were getting murdered. And so these immediate contests, they failed to see the larger perspective. But if we take seriously this passage, where it says, let me go back to it here, it says, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Now, up until this this studying for this series, I've always kind of interpreted that as Paul is Paul is making a statement here describing our walk with God in that in one sense we are to live and work as if it's all of our responsibility, but then also understanding that there is a, that there is a predestining okay, and a movement of God that is taking place in our lives that we can't really understand or comprehend. And so we always have this this, this burden or this, this dynamic, I should say, of, of, of living this life before God where we're, we're striving to give it our all, but we also are recognizing that it is God who strengthens us along the way and gives us everything that we need. So it seemed like Paul was working with that dynamic, and I think that dynamic is present, but I think that, there is, I think that the interpretation is more accurate when we see it as... Um, God is at work in you. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, and if you are, if, if you are, um, well, period, if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, God has called you to something beyond your own life. He's called you into a family, as we know. He's called you into a kingdom, as we know. And we are here as, as the people of God to demonstrate the manifold wisdom of God to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places, Ephesians chapter 3. And God is building a kingdom out of us, and he, through us, is going to demonstrate his love and his mercy and his grace and his power over the forces of darkness that have have continued uh, for millennia to try to thwart him, beginning with Satan's rebellion against God in the heavenlies sometime in the past. So that is what we are a part of. And we know that the scriptures teach that there will be a, a future kingdom where Jesus Christ is sitting at, on the throne. And he will rule the nations. And all things, as Ephesians chapter 1 says, all things will be summed up in him. Okay, so all of us are a part of that. 
So if you have been called into the family, and the scriptures are very clear, Ephesians chapter 1, you have been adopted as a child into his family, and you have been predestined according to this eternal purpose of God. And you have been gifted by the Holy Spirit for particular functions and tasks and roles within his family. So it's better to, it's, it's more accurate to interpret this passage. God is at work in you to make you a part of what he's doing on an eternal basis. And you are called to work out your own salvation in that context. Now, what does salvation mean in Philippians? In Philippians, when Paul says, and this is where his example comes in from chapter 1, deliverance is not, or salvation is not, okay, me getting saved. Okay, it's not me coming to faith in Jesus Christ. I'm no longer uh, going to spend eternity in judgment, all right? I am a child of God. My sins have been forgiven. The Holy Spirit has entered into me. That's not what he's talking about here. When Paul says, I know that I will be saved or I know that I will be delivered, he's saying, as we've said several sermons ago, I know that I will have the courage to face my suffering with contentedness, with courage, with joy, whether I live or whether I die. And that is how Paul interpreted his salvation. That is how Paul interpreted his deliverance. He, he, he is confident through the Holy Spirit's power and through the prayers of the Philippians that he would be able to endure the suffering in a way that honored Jesus Christ. Okay, Because Paul says, whether I remain or come, I want you to live a life worthy of the gospel. A life worthy of the gospel means that you are facing the suffering and the challenges of your life, which are all coming at you, which are all coming at you as you play a role in God's eternal purposes. So what happens in our minds is we don't see that our everyday lives are a part of the progress of the gospel. We don't see that our everyday lives are a part of God's eternal purposes, you know? We don't. Cutting pies was a part of God's eternal purposes for me. You see? Everything, and, and James McDonald from his book, Lord Change My Attitude, Before It's Too Late, says this, God has entrusted to every person a measure of adversity. You have a measure of adversity, and so do I. Just the right amount to accomplish the eternal purposes of God in our lives. Your measure of adversity is like no one else's. And so whether we, are, whether we find ourselves grumbling or complaining about big things, like, you know... You, you try to share the gospel with somebody and you're met with a great deal of, op, uh, of opposition or, or maybe persecution. And then you're more likely to think, oh, I'm suffering for the gospel. But when somebody cuts you off in traffic and then you start hurling insults under your breath, you don't think of that as being a part of God's eternal purposes. And it's because, it's because we don't see that our lives are the very acts of God in his big purposes and plan. And that's, where, and that's what Paul is encouraging them and admonishing them to start thinking of. Because he says, do not grumble or complain about anything. Or actually, it's do not grumble or complain 
and dispute, argue about anything. Grumbling is, exp- is the expression of your discontent. That's what grumbling is. Whenever you are discontent, you grumble. We grumble. I grumble. So that expression is what Paul's saying here. Quit expressing your discontent. Quit arguing. Quit engaging in conflict with each other. And then he gives a reason, so that you may be blameless and innocent. So when we are expressing our discontent, and when we are engaging in arguments with each other, we are undermining our testimony. And certainly undermining this this work of the Spirit. It is God who is at work in you. I know that I will be delivered through the Holy Spirit. Well, when we, are, when we are choosing to express our discontent, when we are choosing to enter into argument, what we are, what we are saying, we, we are denying that work of God in us. We are denying that Holy Spirit work in us. We are saying, and this is where the conceit comes in, I am above experiencing discomfort in my life. So these have been on my mind, and I've made a few comments before about my driving, and I'm sure many of you have the same problem. But, you know, there are obviously there are people that, that drive, and they're just like, did they, did, have they not passed the test? Have they not gone through driver's education? Do they not know how the turn signal works? What are they doing on the road? But what I've noticed, as I've increasingly in my, in my older age, and I have more introspection, I feel my conceit. What kind of an idiot person is that? How much better of a driver am I? You know, and that's a small example. But you know what, that, what, what it's a sign of? It's a sign of, and, and my family sees it the most. It, it is a sign of a deeper attitude and problem in me that says, you know, the, the discomforts and the sufferings of this world are beneath me, and I shouldn't have to experience these things. You know what? And that's exactly opposite of Jesus Christ. Who but for the joy set before him endured the cross and scorned its shame. And who emptied himself of the glory deserving of being God. He willingly entered into a place of suffering. He didn't say, I am above the suffering that exists in this world. Even though he was. He alone had the ability to say that. But he didn't say that. We say it. (laughs) We don't deserve it. We're not God. So he's saying, have this attitude in you. And, and the, the presence of the attitude of conceit is a root of corruption within us that expresses itself um, really negatively in the eyes of the world around us. David Pallison in his book, um, Good and Angry, Good and angry, redeeming anger, irritation, complaining, and bitterness. He says, he calls complaining everyday anger. He says, everyday anger means we've copped an attitude. If I view and treat, each, if I view and treat other people as subhuman, by that very attitude, I'm acting as if I'm superhuman. 
And complaining is really ex the expression of selfish ambition. So he says, do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit. So we've talked about conceit. Well, how is complaining selfish ambition? Well, if we believe that God is at work in us to will and to act according to his good purposes, and, and that every aspect of our lives is a part of, of what he's doing in his plan, and that the context that we're in, uh, Acts 17 says that God has put us in a particular place and at a particular time that we may know and find him. So God has us where we're at and within spheres of people. And so if I grumble and complain about the suffering that I face in this world, which Jesus Christ was sent to address, absolutely, but if I grumble and complain at the suffering that I experience, what I'm saying is, is that I don't really want to be a part of what God has called me to. Because God is trying to use your example of being delivered in the midst of your suffering as a witness. And if all we're doing is grumbling and complaining, our witness is darkened, and all we continue to reflect to God is our desire to have a different life. That's why it's selfish ambition. I don't want the life that God has called me to. I want a different life. I want my own life. I want my own life free of discomforts. And so if you have this pattern within you, within us, this will spread. Discontent and grumbling and arguing spreads. It will spread to your family. It will spread to your work. It will spread to your church. It will spread to every environment that you're in. And it sparks division. And it, and it undermines our witness. Because it is, it is through suffering, it is, it is through Jesus' courageous obedience in the midst of suffering that brought us salvation. It was Paul's courage and gratitude. Think of the prison, which is why we did that message from Acts 16. Paul in prison, he's in stocks, he's in high security, he's in isolation. They are worshiping and praying. And that brought about the deliverance of the prisoners and the, the deliverance of the jailer and his family. It is through our suffering that the witness and testimony of the gospel goes forward. It is through our suffering that we are delivered. Because the gospel is helping us, the gospel gives us a, a bigger context. We may identify problems. And we can, I'm sure some of the questions will come up. We may identify problems, weaknesses in others, including leaders, see weaknesses in our church and its forms, its methods, in our families, in our workplaces. We're going to see problems. But we can approach problems with a, a spirit of unity and a spirit of love. And this takes maturity. Because you have, to, you have to stop and think through, okay, how am I going to address this problem in a way that is loving and strengthening and honoring and, and submissive? Because he does use this, this notion of obedience. How can we address the problems that we face in this world, which do bring suffering, in a way that is not grumbling or complaining or conceited or pursuing selfish ambition? It... it, it 
it takes, you have to step back. We have to become sober-minded. And we have to engage the problems that we face in, in a way that reflects love and unity and humility, the interests of others before my own, consider others better than ourselves. Because in these attitudes, then, we are able, okay, if, if we're conceited and think of ourselves better and more deserving than the others that we're in conflict with, then we're going to approach the problems with arrogance and division and strife. If we think of others better than ourselves and we look to their interests before our own, then we're able to enter into problem solving in a way that is going to be loving and unifying. All right? Conceit gives us a sense of power to dismiss others, including our authorities. It's the other challenge with conceit. It puts us on a higher level. And when we put ourselves on a higher level than the authorities that are in our lives, then we're going to enter into a place that God has told us to stay away from. Submit to your governing authorities. We have authorities in our families. We have authorities in our workplaces, in our schools, in the church. There are authorities in place. But conceit puts us above our authorities. And it ultimately puts us above the authority of God. And that's not a place where we want to be. So we are to obey. We are to obey. We are to obey God. We are to obey God in that we are to set aside our grumbling, our complaining, and our arguing with each other. We are to set aside selfish ambition and conceit. And we are to make as our priority the progress of the gospel, the unified progress of the gospel as a church, as a church. This is a community effort. This is Paul's strongest statement in this passage where he says, do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. And then the text says, holding fast to the word of life. And so this phrase, holding fast, is actually not accurate. Um, so just quickly, so you, since I'm telling you that what the text says is not accurate, um, the phrase is actually holding forth or offering. The, the, the idea of holding fast does not appear in any, ancient, any of the ancient texts. It's always you are presenting something to somebody else. As to why it's translated this way, I don't know. But one of the gentlemen that, I, that I've been reading, he's, he's, uh, um, he wrote a book on Philippians. It's a very recent one. And he just goes through and explains. Nobody has ever done thorough analysis of this word, of this, of this phrase, but it sits at the crux of the book of Philippians. Holding fast has this idea of protecting, right? Holding forth means that we are letting something go. We are offering it. And, and by large majority, that's what the passage means in almost all ancient texts, Holding forth something, giving it away. And he says, 
we are living our lives, and think back to chapter 1 where he says, you know, the, the Roman church has been emboldened with speaking the gospel because of my suffering. We are to have lives that are offering up, that are holding forth the gospel. That's what we're doing. As we live life holding forth the gospel, it is to, our lives are to be characterized by this courageous, joyful gratitude, no grumbling, no disputing. And then that is what shines the light. It, it is, I find this, this, here at the center, it's the center of this book, and we come to this piece where he's essentially arguing that, that our, our sense of our place in God's purposes and the joy and gratitude that we can sustain because of the gospel is the centerpiece of our witness. It's the centerpiece of our witness. It's the crux of our evangelism efforts. We are, we are going to not be effective if within us conceit and selfish ambition overrules. Courage and joy and gratitude in the face of suffering rather than grumbling and arguing about the problems in our lives. And this is, and, and the remedy, so the, the remedy then, the, rem, the remedy for our grumbling and complaining is, is the gospel. McDonald says this, he says, you are forfeiting the grace that could help you through that trial by complaining about it. All the grace and strength you need to experience joy and victory is available to you. But by choosing to complain, by clinging to the idol of a perfect life, you are flushing away the grace of God. That very adversity that you so often complain about is the thing that God wants to use to keep your heart close to him. In his grace, he grants us adversity to bring us close to him. So this week, in terms of, you know, how, how, do, we, how do we stop grumbling and complaining? How do we provide a brighter, more... Um, integral witness to those around us. And I don't, I don't know if it was just God in particular working this week in my life as I was preferring this sermon, but this week I found myself in a, in a very challenging situation, one that usually results in me grumbling, sulking, conflict. And it started in the morning and I, I could recognize what was emerging in me. And I'm also, I'm, I'm literally, this is my prep day for the sermon. This is Tuesday or Wednesday. And so I'm reading these ideas. And so on one level, I have these, these emotions. And they are super strong. It's anger and frustration. And, and on the other level, I'm reading this stuff. <laughs> <laughs> so I've got, so I am just striving all day long. My, it, it took a great deal of emotional energy. I was very unproductive in terms of like getting tasks done. But God was doing something inside of me. I fought, it was a, it was a battle. I had to guard my speech. 
I kept renewing my mind in these truths. And when I had the opportunity, I had to resist the urge to express my impatience and my anger and instead strive to serve. It was, it was a long day, struggle, battle, interior stuff. But God gave me victory. And it's something that Anna had been admonishing me in just of late as well. And I was able to be a comfort and strength when, there was, when I needed to be of service and needed to help rather than just lay out my anger and my frustration and make the demands that I felt I could make. See, the, the gospel does save us. It saved me that day, in that instant. It gave me courage to face these emotions. It gave me love to put others' interests before my own. And the gospel does that. And the gospel is at, at work. It is pressing in. But we have to, you know, we have these admonitions. Renew our minds. Have this mind. And it was a battle in my mind. Was I going to give in? Was I going to make the, the decision to give in to my emotions? Or was I going to resist giving in to my emotions? And at the moment of truth, was I going to resist speaking out with grumbling and complaining and anger? It was in my mind where that was taking place. And so we see here in the text of Scripture, we see here the communication and articulation of the gospel. Do we understand the gospel this way? It's not just for saving us initially. It saves us on a daily basis. And it saves us from grumbling and complaining. It saves us from being a dark witness. It saves us from seeing our lives as, as something that we're trying to build in order to eliminate suffering. And it helps us to see that our life will have suffering. And it saves us from that suffering overwhelming us. And it saves us by giving us joy and courage in the midst of that suffering. That's what the gospel does. Let me pray.